Good afternoon and evening, everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and welcome to tonight's edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. In just one moment, I will be sharing with you some information about our amazing guest speaker tonight and the project that he is helping to develop, the Truth Telling Project, and that's, of course, Dr. David Raglan. But before we go into more about him and then, of course, open up the conversation tonight with him, I just would like to share with you my gratitude for your participation in this dialogue space. As best we can, we try to create a space that is unlike what other typical conference calls and webinars do, at least as far as my knowledge is concerned. And that is to invite a circle, um, an intention of a circle space for dialogue. So we do the best we can to create a town hall atmosphere in this hour together. And uh, to that end, if you have a question that you would like to ask tonight or a comment to make with Dave or just direct it to the general circle, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. That's uh, very easy. You, just, you don't have to click anything else but the number 1 on the phone that you're dialing in with. If you're calling in from Skype, you simply just press 1 on your Skype keypad. So another feature of this space and town hall is that we offer iTunes podcasts. You can also access the archives of this show, which has been going on since 2011. We feature over 130 archives of dialogues with people like Dave, um, Michelle Alexander, Brian Stevenson, Dominic Barter of Restorative Circle, Dr. Johan Galtung, who is based out of Spain and known for his transformational peace-building work. And um, you can find all of those Creative Commons archives based um, at the website, which is restorativejusticeontherise.org. That's restorativejusticeontherise, all one word, .org. It's very important to us that we create an easily accessible platform and one that is either free or very low cost. At some time, um, people dial into this space and um, have shared with me that they've incurred long distance fees. And I wish there were something I could do to create this being a fully free environment in that way. But for the most part, of course, our intention is Creative Commons open source and a community platform for truth-telling, for dialogue around justice and systems transformation. So again, such a warm welcome to all of you tonight who are here with us from North America and Canada, and to any of you who are staying up late to join us in other regions of the world, welcome. So tonight's guest is Dr. David Ragland, and I just would like to say before I read a bit from his bio, that I was deeply inspired by his co-founding of the Truth Telling Project and I believe in response to the violence in Ferguson and the inequity and everybody of course around the world knows the story there of the injustice and of the life lost in Michael Brown and of course the other situations and losses and uh, deep, deep tragedies that have occurred in um, the United States around our denial of racism and um, the ways that we need to rethink, as Dr. David says so beautifully in one of the videos on, his web on the website for the Truth Telling Project, rethink justice. We need to rethink it. So when I speak with many people from across the justice conversation, even police who are trying to help um, reform and redo and rethink, I hear a deep need for conversation and dialogue that is honest and that goes to a level of depth. And so that is why, among many other things, I think that this project is so important. The Truth Telling Project is focused on developing a truth and reconciliation process to address structural violence and racism for Ferguson and beyond. 
And Dr. David Ragland himself, he grew up in North St. Louis, which is a few miles from Ferguson, Missouri. He's the co-founder, again, for the Truth Telling Project in St. Louis, Missouri, and an assistant professor of Peace and Conflict Studies. He also serves on the board of the Peace and Justice Studies Association. And additionally, he is the United Nations representative for the International Peace Research Association. Over the past 13 years, Dr. Ragland has taught at Bucknell, Vassar College, Hofstra University, University of Toledo, Eastern Michigan University, Teachers College, Columbia University, Southern Illinois University, and Washington University in St. Louis. And his research focuses on restorative justice, school and social violence, the school to prison pipeline, peace education, philosophy of education, and so many other important topics. And without further ado, I just want to welcome you to this conversation. I'm going to call you Dave tonight, unless you'd like me to call you Dr. Raglan. No, that's fine. <laughs> Such a heartful welcome to you. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Welcome. Thank you. It sounds more impressive than, <laughs> than <it does. laughs> Well, I, you know, I have this feeling that I'd really love if you would be willing to just go right to the heart of the matter tonight. Let's not um, waste any time with, with uh, the chat, that is. Um, I want to, before I ask you about how you got into this work in your path, I just want to start out with something that... Um, I found to be so profound in watching some of the videos on the Truth Telling Project's website and there's one of you speaking to the, the, the um, I don't even know how to say it, just, just speaking to Ferguson. And I'm wondering how you feel and how you might see us working together to reverse the forces of denial regarding racism. How are we going to reverse that denial? And how does the truth-telling project aim to do that? I think that's an excellent uh, question. And I remember that night. It was the night when we were waiting for, um, or right before we were wait, waiting for, uh, to find out if Darren Wilson would be, um, if that would actually be charges by the grand jury. And um, we actually uh, put up that part of our website because we wanted people to express how they were feeling and, and share with America. And in part, um, truth-telling came about uh, because of our uh, deep interest uh, um, in restorative justice, but uh, more uh, formally uh, a truth and reconciliation process. And one of the things that we were um, thinking about is that often there's this kind of sense of deniability or this, this kind of ignorance, whether it be will, willful or uh, produced ignorance. I'm not sure that, that people feel as though they don't know what's actually happening in America. And what happened in Ferguson uh, happens all around the country, uh, has been happening as part of, I think, a, a long historical legacy. And one of the things that uh, we essentially want to do and have been doing is providing uh, a space that's aligned with the protest space where people can speak truth. And I think also when it's in a different place out on the streets when people are talking, emotions run high. But when people are, are in a space where they can share their experience, uh, we found that it's educative. And uh, one, of, one of our good friends, he's Justin Hanford. Justin Hansford, he's an um, attorney and a lawyer, uh, professor at St. Louis U Law School. He went with Michael Brown's mother to Geneva uh, when she was testifying um, or, or uh, speaking in front of the UN Commission on Human Rights. And 
he was saying how when uh, Mike Brown's mother, uh, when, when, well, initially when the lawyers and the academics presented all the facts and figures, people's heads nodded. But then when Mike Brown's mother shared her story, people listened and people believed because they could connect uh, emotively to the experience of a mother. And in part, what we're doing and and what we'll be doing uh, November, the second weekend in November, is essentially launching um, what will be a truth uh, commission uh, in Ferguson where people will be uh, sharing their experiences and um, it'll be piped out nationwide via live stream, uh, via a number of other mediums uh, so Americans, America can see. And we're sending out people who are organizing these events so that we can commit to working uh, toward addressing some of these issues. But while we're committed to... Uh, truth and reconciliation, we also understand that truth is a step that we cannot skip. And so often it's more comfortable for uh, us to go directly to forgiving. While that's important and necessary, uh, people have to hear and uh, understand what happened and what's happening and uh, be part of uh, making changes. And um, and so we've committed to a long-term project uh, toward truth and reconciliation. And we uh, went out and talked with um, Green's Reconciliation Commission. We uh, made a close study of truth and reconciliation and talked to various uh, people from various commissions all over the world um, so that we can learn and develop something that works specifically for our community but that has implications nationwide because we know what Mm -hmm. happens in Ferguson from the news happens all across America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, Uh, I, I remember... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please, please, don't let me interrupt you. Oh, no, I actually forgot what I was going to say after that. Well, pardon me for that. <laughs> um, oh, no, you. I think what we probably, many of us in this dialogue space would like to know is what you um, experienced when, because I'm, I'm assuming you can, you've already conducted some um, processes. That, that's mm-hmm. correct, right? You, you did one in Ferguson and um, a couple other places as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, what I'd li- like to hear from you, if you'd be willing, is how those processes worked um, and perhaps some, some insights that were gained, um, what worked for people what seemed to take it to the next needed level, um, whereas, you know, business as usual obviously is not working. I, I think one of the things that we learned is that nothing can be imposed on communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something that um, as an academic, uh, as an activist, but as a person from uh, St. Louis and from a, a community that people come in and study and do projects and leave and um, that it has to be from the community. It has to be bought into by the community. Uh, Otherwise, it won't work. But also, I think um, part of what we've been working on is um, trying to educate our community about truth and reconciliation. And that's what we did for the first Truth-Telling Weekend. We brought in um, people who were parts of truth commissions, uh, people who were restorative justice practitioners, 
and uh, we we sat in circles and we we learned about truth and reconciliation and we shared our experiences about um, what's been happening in our communities and we also brought what well, best practices back from various communities um, because um, I think it's it's um, in part this is kind of, uh, for me, uh, participatory action research um, in one sense, but then in another sense, it's about uh, working to expand the beloved community uh, because we we see restorative justice mm-hmm. in the circle as uh, something that has to be expanded to as much mm-hmm. of our society as possible if we are to figure out how to move forward. But I mm. think our our methodology is emergent uh, and mm. it's based on voices that people don't usually listen to. And it's also based on voices um, that we don't want to listen to that make us uncomfortable, that make our, the back of our necks uh, itch and, and uh, that make our, that it makes us uncomfortable because we wonder how can we be living in the same society Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. this is, it is something that we have to learn how to sit with and listen and connect our same experience and, and say to ourselves, what if my child was having this experience? But also um, try to be very honest about our history and look mm-hmm. and educate ourselves. And some of the things that we've been doing, I have a colleague from, uh, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, which is um, it's, um, <clears throat> right down the road from St. Louis. And uh, he came to me back in um, last October, and he said, uh, how can I help? Um, and he started talking about conversations that he's been having with his neighbors. And then um, it reminded me of a conversation that I had with Betty Reardon. And she told me, uh, that we need um, a decade of truth and reconciliation. And what that mm-hmm. looks like is mm-hmm. people having intentional conversations in their living rooms for a decade about how we've been implicit in racism and how it is part mm-hmm. of the very air that we breathe. But it's, it's part of the foundational evil of this society, and we have to deal with it. Other countries mm-hmm. won't respect us. Um, that we'll be constantly running away from um, something. We'll constantly be wondering, what are those people talking about? But we have an opportunity right now to sit with it, to try to engage it and to educate ourselves. And so uh, my colleague uh, started uh, with us a um, living room conversation series where um, he's ran into intergroup and intragroup dialogues or, uh, so that people can, number one, have conversations in affinity groups where they feel comfortable, mm-hmm. but then also move toward um, interracial uh, dialogue groups because there has to be something said for honesty. Um, and We've been having dialogues all this time. We have to try something different, and we have to try it with a purpose. Um, it can't be intergroup dialogues where, uh, or intergroup dialogues where people are saying the same things, but it has to be intentional. It has to be based on um, understanding our own privilege or lack of privilege and mm-hmm. uh, where there's intersectionality, where we connect with other people and other identities. Um, but um, it, it, it's, um, it's been beautiful on, on one hand working in this way, uh, but it is, it's been uh, difficult and um, uh, requiring a lot of energy and, and mm-hmm. a lot and of courage. Um, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of courage, too, for, for those who step in and are willing uh, to speak about the heart of the matter, the marrow of what, what's really going on instead of sweeping it under the rug. Um, and probably many surprising things happen in these spaces where, you know, people, those wounds are going to surface, aren't they? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, I think, and, and for so, me, it, yeah, it's been fair. I don't want to live in a society like this anymore. Right. And so I'm committed to being a part of the change. Right. So, Dave, tell us a bit more about the um, branches of this project. And you, you mentioned living room conversations, and um, I just would like to direct people, of course, to thetruthtellingproject.org. There's um, extraordinary videos there and more information about everything that's happening with the Truth Telling Project. And Dave, you mentioned the launch will be in, in mid-November, I think you said, the second weekend of November. The second weekend. And, that, and so, and so uh, when we start, um, uh, it'll essentially uh, be the first of many hearings. Um, and uh, you'll you'll see some faces that you've uh, seen before and heard from before. Um, and what the hearings essentially look like is people um, testifying and sharing their experiences. And uh, one of the, the ways that people can hook into that is by uh, considering um, hosting an event um, in their own living room or, or their community and getting in touch with us through our website. And we're actually in the process of launching a brand new website, which is going to specifically focus on the hearings. And that will be um, almost uh, within, a, within a week or two. You'll, you'll see that. And um, so not only are we doing that, but uh, one of the co-directors, Pastor Corey, who's a member of the Ferguson Frontline, has a radio program um, called Grounded. Um, and um, I can uh, share that with you, and you can share with your group. And she often uh, broadcasts live from uh, protests in Ferguson. Um, and... Uh, we have a, a close connection with the street. We we try to, I mean, because it's my community, uh, I believe that part of what we're doing, part of restorative justice is demanding justice, but also as someone who's a nonviolence and peace practitioner, uh, I'm, I'm committed to being uh, in the protest um, and uh, being an example um, and being there uh, for my community, and um, so um, so we we are at protests. We also have a radio show, and um, on November uh, the thirteenth, we are planning uh, a night of a thousand conversations across America, mm-hmm. and uh, that will be. Um, part of uh, people being able to get involved and uh, you all are hearing it first because we just uh, decided uh, or uh, rolled out this plan which we haven't uh, released publicly yet and um, uh, so we're essentially um, uh, launching uh, those initiatives Um, Mm -hmm. and the way the hearings work is um, uh, people will testify, but there will also be hearing, healing circles, which uh, uh, you won't necessarily see, but um, at the event, uh, there will be uh, healing circles at all of our events, um, uh, which are led by uh, healers and restorative justice practitioners. Um, and um, what we are also doing is recording and um, analyzing uh, the testimony uh, which will essentially go into report form uh, for the first preliminary report. And our the, the actual truth-telling is essentially what we call um, what Dr. Armani Scott, who's our other co-director, uh, calls a moral inventory. We have to take account of um, what our society looks like. And we'll be hearing from a number of different voices from uh, protesters from families of victims of police violence, uh, from police, uh, from uh, people uh, in the community, um, and there's our actual listeners or commissioners are 
well-respected members of the local community and some national figures as well. Um, and that will be uh, released shortly. Um, but um, we there's a lot of moving parts, and uh, we've been working night and day on this. Dave, um, for people who may not be in one of the main areas that these, the thousand conversations are being held, what are the ways that people might still mobilize together with the greater whole across the country or across the world? Hmm. That's a really good question. And uh, one of the ways that people can actually mo um, mobilize or be a part of us is through our website to leave their information. Um, but also, uh, they can host uh, one of the conversations in their mm -hmm. own home or community. And uh, okay. one of the, there will be a uh, national call-in um, at the beginning okay. of next month which will uh, give people some very specific places to go to, some directions, some hotline, uh, also a hotline, and also how they can actually stream the testimony or listen to it uh, via a call-in number. Um, and uh, we just uh, also linked up with uh, the Babel Project. And uh, there's a number of our youth who have been working with us who uh, will be actually filming um, uh, throughout the whole process. Um, and the Babel Project teaches uh, youth, high school, middle school, mm -hmm. high school age, how to use cameras. And uh, the, the youth who are actually doing the filming are from Ferguson. And one of the things uh, that, that we see is um, the perspective of other folks and and um, who aren't necessarily from the community weighing in on people's experience, but it looks very different um, when you hear it from the source, from people right. who live the experience day to day, and I think that's important. Um, right. So I think our our general approach is grounded ground up uh, from the community, listening and taking lead from local voices. Uh, because people know what they need in their communities, and they're also willing to work forward uh, what they work toward what they want in their communities uh, if right. they're involved in a process that's formed around what they're saying, and and if yeah. they're part part of it, and also capacity is being developed for them to actually run their own show. You touched on something I think hugely important that also um, you have posted uh, Angela Davis speaking um, in Ferguson and one of the things she concludes with in that really powerful talk that is on the Truth Telling Project website, the video section, which has a robust array of uh, responses and people's heartfelt views and feelings about um, the violence police violence and, and community violence happening in this country. Um, I really encourage you to check it out. It's again at the truthtellingproject.org. And if you're just joining us, um, we're right in the middle of a, a conversation with Dr. David Ragman, who is the co-founder of the Truth Telling Project. And he's been talking quite a bit about this upcoming launch uh, of a thousand conversations. So if you would like to stay in touch with um, Dr. Ragland and team, make sure you go to truth, uh, the truth and you can also be sure to receive updates from Restorative Justice on the Rise about that launch. Uh, if you're not already on our mailing list, you can do that at restorativejusticeontherise.org. Um, so, Dave, um, I, was, I was just mentioning Angela Davis and what mm -hmm. she was concluding with in that video you just pointed to, and that's not just to, to go for what we think we need, but what we know we want, and what is common in our hearts of, um, uh, and needs systemically, of course. And I wonder if you could back up what she said there with what you see that being. What, what, do, we need, what do we need to go for, truly, and not hesitate in these times? I, you know, I think we need to go for an America 
where we replace this punitive justice system with restorative justice in every sense of the word. And I think we need to re-envision how we relate to each other. And in part, um, uh, we have to re-envision a system other than one that makes us compete uh, to no end with each other. Uh, One, and and I believe that capitalism is a system of winners and losers. And that makes it morally acceptable for people who are less desirable in our society to be losers. Um, and so I think we have to re-envision a society. I, I firmly believe in a society without prisons. Um, I firmly believe in a, a real democratic society where uh, people... Um, police their own communities or um, not necessarily police their own communities, but their communities are actual communities where people know each other and uh, speak with each other. But I I think part of this has to come out of uh, a process where people are actually uh, envisioning um, what they they want our what they want their community looks like and looks different from community to community. Mm-hmm. And so a number of places have asked have told us, well, we'd like to do truth telling in um our own community. And uh what we've come back to them saying is gather uh respected people in your community together um and have a process uh, where you can include as many people, many voices as possible, and see what people want um, as a process. It has to be uh, local processes um, and inspired by communities. But at the same time, um, at the first truth-telling weekend, uh, we structured the weekend um, as uh, beginning with general what is truth and reconciliation, and then from truth-telling to transformation. And on the last day, people envisioned what they want their communities to look like. Um, And part of that is what I learned um, as uh, someone committed to peace education and peace and uh, uh, conflict and restorative justice, um, the work that Elise Boulding did on imaging and also uh, that um, uh, Betty Reardon did on preferred futures. Uh, and we have to be able to, to develop uh, a capacity to imagine beyond our violent system. Mm-hmm. And that has to be taught. Um, and it can be learned, uh, mm-hmm. but it has to be something that we throw ourselves into. And we have to decide that we don't want a violent society anymore. And that's why we, that's the, the title of the Angela Davis event was called Violence, uh, Uncovering Violence in America, or Truth-Telling uh-huh. to Uncover Violence in America. Um, uh, so, so it's, it's... Dave, let, let me just stop you just for a moment, because I want to remind folks that if they'd like to get involved in this live conversation with Dr. David Raglan... Um, tonight, please press one on your telephone keypad. Um, if you have a comment that you'd like to make or a question, one on your telephone keypad. And I also have a, a web question here from Mary um, that I'd like to throw in here really quickly that I think just ties right into what you just were sharing, Dave. She asks um, about actually police and how do we avoid demonizing police but also require accountability, and how also would police academy training differ to support demilitarization and violence? And the reduction of Right. So I think that was a a huge question. And I think we we have to work consciously to avoid demonizing police, but what I've always believed is that police carry out the wishes of America. Mm-hmm. And America has to change its heart, and police will change their heart. Um, but 
But in the meantime, what that does look like is um, some of the proposals that are out there. I mean, it has to go way beyond body cams because we see people getting uh, killed with body cams, uh, with police with body cams, or police refusing to turn them on. Um, but I, I think um, uh, what it has to look like is real uh, community policing. And when I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the things that came out of the Truth Commission was a uh, police force that was committed to working with communities. Um, and also, um, if we look at what happened in Richmond, California, um, they had one of the highest, for a small town, they had one of the highest murder rates uh, in the country, in a small town. And what the city council did was uh, open up their data uh, to a, a nonprofit organization, and uh, that nonprofit organization worked directly with people who were likely to commit violence, and you can tell based on arrests and uh, violent crimes. Um, and and actually uh, put it, putting in opportunities or essentially uh, people got scholarships if they didn't get arrested or if they went to school. Um, so that, that we have to be very clear that um, there has to be structural change where people have access to opportunities um, and um, won't commit violence. Um, and then police essentially um, often heavy-handedly respond to everyone coming from those com communities. So uh, some one person that I know has is working with police to do the bias test and uh, tie um, uh, you being certified as a police officer to uh, what kind of bias you have. Uh, and there's a Harvard bias test, but there's also uh, an organization that started and has improved upon the Harvard bias test called Check Your Bias. Um, and then I've seen a community organization in Brazil, Sao Paulo, actually work with um, businesses to um, develop awards for uh, police and communities that work well together. Um, and then there's also the proposal which uh, one of my colleagues, an economics professor from Bucknell, uh, proposed, um, and another colleague uh, from D.C., uh, both proposed tying um, police to uh, insurance, like a, a bail bondsman or any, any job where you have to have insurance, that uh, police have essentially like operating insurance. And... Uh, tying their behavior uh, to their ability to actually police. Um, and I think there has to be uh, significant reform of police. There's a number of uh, great policy uh, proposals coming out um, uh, from thisisthemovement.org. There's uh, Campaign Zero. Uh, if you go to joincampaignzero.org, you can see and actually... Uh, see how people are actually proposing ideas for policy uh, in their website, and this seems to be a comprehensive approach to dealing with police violence. But we have to, um, and what we're doing is the other part, which is connecting our experience to the hearts and minds of Americans, and that's when, when I think we'll change. Uh, and that's something we haven't been able to do in civil rights. Uh, we've, we're headed in that direction, but we have to push and we have to realize this, this, may, this is a worthy and just uh, cause. Mm -hmm. well, I'm sure that you have probably quite a few colleagues who are policemen themselves, and I'm wondering if you have any... Um, insights to relay around what's important to them and, and the, the people within the system, how are they seeing it changing? What are the most important steps we need to take now um, besides the very important work 
that this, the, the truth telling project and the conversations provide where we, we go to that truth and we quit the denial. Um, wh how are police seeing change happening? The ones that, that are police? aware that it needs to happen. Well, um, so there's one uh, police officer that I met who uh, was really pushing the notion of peace officers in every sense of the word and uh, moving back to um, hiring um, police who um, have good relationships with, with communities. And, and I think one of the most important things is um, I think police should actually live in the communities they police. Often, um, particularly in, in uh, Ferguson and St. Louis and in Jennings and uh, Bell Ridge and Normandy, some of the surrounding areas of St. Louis, police come from 50 miles away to work in communities that, that they see as other. Um, and we have a great deal that we need to do um, in terms of uh, educating for peace and pushing for education for peace in our schools so that um, people who are graduating from schools um, <clears throat> have some kind of connection um, and sense of respect for the dignity of other folk. Um, so it's a huge educational project. Um, it's possible. It's happening in silo silos all over the country. Uh, we see people adopting restorative justice practices, actually police adopting it. We see um, courts adopting it. Um, so I, I see a trajectory mm -hmm. in that direction. Um, and mm -hmm. I see us, I, I think that if we keep in the same direction over the next few years, we'll have a critical mass. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we'll be able to transform this society. So I'm uh, very hopeful week, about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. me too. I think so many of us are, and all, a lot of us are, are really on the ground doing whatever we can in our communities. And it's very promising. Even in, in the behemoth of the darkness, there's a lot to be said for the possibilities and things that are already showing themselves as viable solutions. So um, I... I wanted to go back to um, another question that was submitted online here and just um, look again at how restorative practices, you, know, you were just speaking about how restorative justice um, is a part of this process. And there we have a lot of new um, folks in the circle tonight and I'm wondering if um, you might speak to what the values of restorative justice are, including uh, perhaps the, the key role of relationship building, which ties into um, understanding a person, having empathy for a person, even if you're not exactly in their shoes and their lives. Um, so could you speak, first of all, to the principles of restorative justice and practices and how they support a process like this. And then, if you would, uh, be so kind to share with us your take on what the main uh, misconception of restorative justice might be. Uh, so for me, I, I think that uh, definitely you mentioned some of it, that uh, some of the core principles of restorative justice is uh, relationships, uh, relationships with people among um, all things, um, and developing those relationships, and um, but also the dignity in uh, allowing all voices to be heard. Uh, when we listen to other people and people's voices are thoroughly listened to, um, then we show respect uh, of that person's dignity. Um, and um, I think that, um, you know, restorative justice is, is transformative uh, because um, to be in connection and relationship with 
someone who, um, and I remember one circle that I was in uh, with a colleague um, at, a, at a school in New York, um, and um, it was essentially about uh, some students who were um, misunderstanding uh, and hearing stuff from other people, and we asked them, you know, if they wanted to come to the circle, and they agreed to come to the circle. And, you know, at first, you know, um, they they wouldn't even look at each other. But when they heard each other speak um, and actually explain uh, what was happening, which goes to how restorative justice has the possibility to get to the root causes of conflict, um, they were able to listen to each other more and 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 agree to uh if there was a, a future rumors going around that they would actually come to each other and the thing that was so transformative about this was that they had initially threatened each other with violence um wow. and i think I think that some of the misconceptions about restorative justice is that um you know, it's it's like all touchy feely. Um, that um, there's no accountability involved, um, and and it is accountability involved because, in part, um, I, I've thought a lot about this as well. I believe restorative justice is also distributive, um, particularly for communities who. Um, uh, don't always uh, have uh, resources. And, and I've seen how the circle provides the development of relationships, enough so that people can share their needs and help provide for each other. But also, uh, when uh, there is no one willing to come into the circle and participate in a process to to change harmful relationships. Like I've seen um, where police have been invited to circles and they, they have refused to come. The circle, the community, the relationships developed um, were uh, healing in that there was love and there was a solidarity in, in the circle and the community that provided uh, support for folks. Um, so I, I think it's a, and I know it's a transformative process um, that can be many things um, uh, that's mm-hmm. deep. And I think it's as, as old as um, almost every culture uh, and deep-rooted um, in, in very traditional forms and ways of being in community with others. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dave. I, I have a question that's burning, um, and it relates to the experience, my own experience, actually, which I know many others must be feeling because no experience is an island in and of itself. <laughs> um, I was uh, at the National Association for Communities and Restorative Justice Conference, um, which was an extraordinary event in Florida in June this past year, and Dr. Cornell West, Brother Cornell, was there to speak, and um, it was the first time uh, that I had attended a large-scale event of that sort where there was, an e- there was equanimity of representation across people of color, and um, it was both very fulfilling for me And it also made me wonder about how, as a woman of white privilege, of privilege, of of something that I was born into that I may not even be aware of the implications of that, how can I and others like myself better understand and serve the transformation at hand here and work with our black brothers and sisters and with all people of color, all from all races, um, towards peace and towards this understanding that I, I know that we all want, um, at least most of us. That's a huge question, and it's already getting towards the top of the hour, but I 
I think it's an important one to really put out there. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, <clears throat> uh, I think in part um, by working with uh, by you know using and learning about restorative justice, I mean, we begin the work. I think it's just the beginning. But um, I think in part um, as as practitioners, as uh, academics, oftentimes we we have the language of restorative justice, uh, but many times communities uh, have been using the circle process, have been using it and not naming it that. And so part of it has to be when encountering communities respecting and listening and learning from what's already happening. Um, and um, I would say taking guidance uh, from communities, letting people who are not, you know, um, considered by mainstream society experts, uh, listening to uh, what people who've been victimized by racism need. But also, um, I think... um, uh, it has to be uh, conversations um, and intentional conversations uh, about race that white people have among each other, um, not letting the joke pass uh, at family dinners, uh, being um, using restorative methods to try to have conversations with family members, um, doing uh, what we can in our own communities. Because often, you know, I get in front of a a class and I talk about racism, I can present, you know, experiences, I can, you know, use critical pedagogy and theory of the oppressed and all kinds of methods to try to help students understand. But I've experienced that sometimes, you know, people feel like they they can't believe it because... um, you know, I'm too close to it, so I can't be objective. Um, or, mm-hmm. or no, that wasn't about race. Um, and so one of the mm-hmm. things that I tell allies all the time, you have to talk to other white people. You have to enlist them uh, on uh, doing their own work. And, and um, so I'm at um, teaching at Juniata College, and um, it's in a small town, Huntington, which is beautiful. Uh, but one of the things that um, I saw when arriving here is a number of Confederate flags. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of my new colleagues came to me and was like, okay, you know, what what can you do? Can you, you know, uh, can you do this and do that? And, I, and what I said was, um, this is your community. Um mm-hmm. How do, how do you take hold of it and talk to the people in your community? Because if if the people in the community don't accept it, it won't happen. And so what um, uh, one of my colleagues did is to start um, uh, a chapter of an anti-racist organization um, where they're educating themselves, and, and, and I'm definitely a part of it. Um, and then... Uh, what I also saw was uh, one of the, the my colleagues actually going to the school board and talking about the um, Confederate flags that was on the back of student cars and uh, mm-hmm. demanding that there there be change. Um, and you know, from and that's what I've told all the people like uh, that 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 have come to me. This is something. Because in part, racism is black folks' problem and people of color problems because we experience it. But then at the same time, it doesn't necessarily come from us. We we don't uh, give the microaggressions to ourselves. We don't. I mean, there is some self hatred, of course, and and we don't call. Uh, we don't you know use a derogatory way of calling each other uh, names. We don't. Um, uh, discriminate in jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, I so it has to be real work and constant vigilance and mm-hmm. not always being with people that we're comfortable around. And and right. when, we, when we, you know, it has to be that. It has to be 
very much intentional and very much uh, focused at, at our hearts and taking moral inventory mm-hmm. and working at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard. It's a hard mm-hmm. thing to do because we grow up. Like, I'm a you know, I have some attitudes that are sexist because I, I've grown up in this patriarchal society, but I mm-hmm. constantly work on it and I try to check myself. I try to check my male privilege. Um, mm-hmm. So it has to be has to be something. Dave, can you share with us what inspires you to continue each day? Do you have a a reflection uh, on on something that means something deeply to you that that gets you moving, perhaps in the morning, or that carries you even in in some of the darkness that you surely are facing in this work? I, I would say it's my family, you know, my nephews, uh, and um, the relationships with friends that I have and the uh, allies and the people that I feel responsible to. Um, my, my nephews uh, live uh, near Ferguson, and I know they're going to grow up. And um, I... I said it earlier, I refuse to live in the world as it is. I refuse. Mm -hmm. And I won't back down from that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that keeps me going. And I know I'm responsible to, you know, the people who I work closely with every day. I know that we're all depending on each other. So I, I, um, Mm -hmm. I'm committed to, um, getting up and doing what I need to do every day, and it's um, sometimes it's really depressing. Sometimes it's really joyful because we pray with each other on the phone, and we and I'm not very religious. Uh, I'm spiritual. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have a, a family church home in St. Louis, uh, but but I, I take what I can get from the, the people who are around me who, and just knowing I'm in solidarity with people, like even knowing that there's this group right here interested in restorative justice and restorative justice that's connected to a movement for black lives is is beautiful to me. You know? mm-hmm. It, it's been an extraordinary honor to have you with us tonight, Dave. Um, of course, we've been fortunate to have Dr. David Ragman here with us tonight on Restorative Justice on the Rise. And I just want to thank you with all of my heart for everything that you're doing and all of your colleagues are doing. And again, invite the circle here, um, whether you're listening live right now and participating live or on the podcast, be sure to check out thetruthtellingproject.org and look out for more information coming soon for the launch of A Thousand Conversations, which will be coming all over the, the United States. There will be groups forming, um, and that's in mid-November. So just once again, thank you so much, Dave, for your time tonight. Thank you. Um, it's been an honor and, for me uh, as well. Thank you so much, and we'll be hearing from you again soon and circulating information about A Thousand Conversations. And uh, just a reminder, if you'd like to learn more about restorative justice, there is a national clickable map that was underwritten by private foundations and also by the co-sponsorship of the Peace Alliance, which is an extraordinary organization mobilizing action teams and doing advocacy for peace-building issues across our country and beyond. More information can be found about the Peace Alliance at peacealliance.org. We also have a national conference coming up in Washington, D.C. That's the weekend of October 16th through the 20th. One of the topics of conversation will be humanizing justice systems. Once again, please check out restorativejusticeontherise.org. Look for this podcast. Pass it on. Keep conversing. Keep building and reweaving. Thank you again so much for your participation in this series. Join us next week 
as we talk with Dr. Jared Side. He is the founder of the Center for Counsel, which is uh, envisioning a world in which every voice is heard, no one is invisible, and all have the opportunity to connect to community. And again, thank you to Dr. David Ragland of the Truth Telling Project. Good night, everyone. Thank you for being a part of this temple.